faith in making the wrong decision where you are smart enough and prepared enough to change course. And I've got you know, feelings about where to go, but the only way to know whether that's a good idea or not is you've got to sort of go down the path. And you know that once you start going down that path, it's going to shift a little bit. Um, and you have to have faith in the people you work with and everyone around you that, you know, and you've got a team of people that can talk that say, all right, this isn't how we thought it was going to be and you can change. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler. Today's guest is Randall Klein. Randall is the executive artistic director of SF Jazz. By all measures, SF Jazz is one of the preeminent cultural organizations in the world. Randall founded SF Jazz over 35 years ago. Like the progressive jazz that Randall champions, I hope you enjoy this free-form conversation, covering and connecting conversations to aluminum siding, to youth football, and to Steve Martin, among other things. Here is my conversation with Randall Klein. So I am sitting here at the SF Jazz Building in San Francisco um, with a gentleman I've known for a really long time. Uh, I met Randall Klein uh, in 2004 uh, as a referral from a client to help Randall on his venture, which we're going to talk about uh, much more today. So thank you, Randall, for, for joining me today. Um, we'll start like we start every one of these, uh, and that is, you know, the question which I like to ask and hear from all sorts of people, and that is, what did you want to do when you were a little kid, when you grew up? That is a great question, Drew, and uh, I can't really say, you know, I had, I had a, a few things kind of growing up, nothing really, not, not one of those like I want to be famous as a, you know, but I can think of little things along, you know, in the, it was the, the space race, it was uh, happening, and uh, Sputnik and uh, John Glenn, so astronauts were really kind of cool at that time, you know, cowboys were cool, you know, all the things on TV that I kind of got inundated with, um, but never really sort of felt like, you know, there was a, a career path ahead, ahead of me, so I always ended up, you know, I was always curious and looking at things, and uh, you know, wherever I sort of ended up doing, that that kind of helped pull me towards more about sort of what what I thought I might want to do when I grew up. Although it's still a good question today, what I what I might what want to be might, when you grow up, <laughs> exactly. But there were it's 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 at least it's my experience. Uh, I'll share my story some other time. But that were influenced early on uh, on something as fundamental as conversation uh, and how we think about the world we're in. Uh, if we look back, we can pick times out of our childhood uh, that made us think certain ways. Can you think of a time while watching necessarily John Glenn or anybody else where somebody said something or taught you something that has guided you? Yeah. Well, you know, not getting too deep into my personal psychology here, but, you know, I grew up in a reasonably unstable but stable environment. Um, you know, my, uh, my, my father was a compulsive gambler. And as a result, you know, I, there was lots of ups and downs of, of, of a kind of a world like that. 
And, you know, I always look for sort of steadying things here or escapist things uh, because, you know, the tension, there was tension a lot in my household. And so being outside of that household was a good thing. So I always saw things sort of on the, uh, the, the outside. Um, and there were conversations I can remember, particularly with my father at, at certain times that were influential. I can remember conversations, uh, you know, I, I, I got very involved with athletics and particularly football in junior high school and high school and a little bit in college as well, too. Uh, and these were, and you know, the athletic part of it, the football thing, was a very um, formative thing for me, actually, because I was a, at best, an average athlete, probably not even close to that. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I had a high school football system that was that excelled. You know, it was the top in the state kind of thing. And you know, they got a lot out of a little. Basically, there was a few stars that were in part of it, but basically, it was a wonderful team effort and really well organized. And you know, the way those coaches and design the system was very organized as you came along. So I found, you know, inserting myself in that system, which you did as a young kid, you were learning high school plays as a, as a junior high school student, you know, you got into a system and there was a philosophy. And if you sort of bought in and, you know, you know, you could move along in the system. And so for someone, for me, who's average, that was great. I got to sort of do, do well in a system like that. And I was looking for things to do. My, the other part of a system sort of or questions or conversations were just around, you know, things that form us as adults, work ethics and, and things to do. And it was that football program was a very heavy work ethic. I mean, it involved a lot of effort if you did want to succeed. It just wasn't following the rules, but it was really, really following the rules. And like, like what? what oh, just, you know, lots of, you know, outside working out and studying systems and being, you know, very devoted to a particular thing. So, you know, my, my remember my mom was very supportive of this and, you know, would, uh, you know, cook me all the right meals at the right hmm. time and, you know, all the things. And it was, you know, it was a cool thing. There was, and it was like this rah-rah, you know, kind of thing, but also in an interesting time where, you know, it was the, you know, late 60s, early 70s, and the, sort of the social order was starting to, to fall apart a little bit as far as the idea of, uh, you know, uh, kind of middle-class America and what are values. So, you know, the, the, the summer of love and and uh, civil rights movements and all these things really changed how we thought. I mean, it was really, you know, I'm 63 years old and the, these were formative, formative times. So I, I was looking for, you know, it was a time that everyone was sort of searching. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, at the same time, I found this thing, you know, regarding athletics that, that was very disciplined. And my father was very undisciplined, basically, in a, in a certain kind of way. And I, you know, one particular conversation I really remember that you know, formed, you know, a lot of my thinking, which, you know, you know, contrary to what his advice was. Uh, but in high school, because I was involved in sports, you know, one of the cool jobs for high school athletes was being a playground instructor in this little town. And you get to, you know, it's a great job. You get to walk around in gym shorts and, uh, you know, sneakers and T-shirts and have a whistle around your neck and, you know, kind of be like a make, a make-believe coach for a summer with little kids and the little right. kids. And it was great. It was, you know, and I remember going to my father saying, you oh, know, great, you know, I'm going to, you know, take this job and it paid five bucks an hour or whatever. And, you know, and his advice back to me was, you know, you, you know, why would you do that? You know, that kind of work is for suckers, you know, they, you know, or in work in general, working, you, you know, you work too hard for that. Uh, and it, there are various reasons why he had that particular philosophy. He was a, an aluminum siding salesman at the time. 
he would encourage me rather uh, to, to work physically hard to you know work in his business for the summer and uh, you know ostensibly you know sort of bilk people into buying aluminum siding, which you would get a much greater commission. I could make a lot more money right. uh, doing this, and so that was that was the 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 value proposition was there. You know, more money, less ethical, uh, less money. You know, upstanding sort of yeah. nice thing, and and I realized that. All right. Well, I'm I'm kind of being taught not to work here, and so that helped really, you know. So as I sort of moved away from home, you know, trying to have to learn basically, you know, teach myself mm-hmm. these things of of you know how important it was to work and how important whatever the job you took was was very important, and mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't a question of evaluating a job, but really what felt right for you became sort of the most important thing. And I tended to gravitate towards things that sort of felt right for me. Right. Right. So, so we're along your career trajectory at that point with the whistle around your, your neck and the gym shorts, but that certainly changed, uh, obviously probably after high school or college or yeah, course, where was, did you go on to? Yeah. So music became, you know, was a big thing for me growing up as well too. The, the same, the very same father was a very good amateur jazz piano player and a lot of music played in the house. And my mom was a big opera lover and show tune lover. And so I heard lots of great music and music was really in me. My brothers both were really into music, my older brothers. So I heard a lot of things. So, you know, I, I had, a, I got a bass guitar when I was a young teenager and learned to play, was playing in rock bands and covering animals tunes and Rolling Stones tunes and Beatles tunes. And, and that was a parallel path for me. So at the same time, I was, you know, being the, the kind of jock type. And I didn't view one world or another. I, you know, I liked, you know, both of those things. And they were great stuff. So I went off to college. I wanted to play football in college. I did for a bit my uh, my freshman year. Uh, but I got really involved back again in playing music again mm. at that point, playing my my bass guitar and fell into some work uh, accompanying a, a folk singer, a, a kid who was a classmate of mine in high school who was working in the Boston area in the summer. So I came back not, I did do that summer of selling the aluminum siding, uh, which was lucrative and very, uh, <laughs> very empty at that. But right. uh, it was, uh, but then I did spend a summer doing this and I th- and that's where I got a bug. I, you know, I, something that I said, oh, this is really, this is something that a direction I want to move. So that sort of set me on a path to to want to become a musician. At that point, so at, at age 19, 20, I decided, oh, maybe I want to be a musician here. Right. And then I dropped out of college and I moved to the West Coast from the East Coast and thought I'd go back to school here, um, actually in San Diego, where my brother was living at the time and becoming a music student. Hmm. And I followed that path and I learned a lot in that world. What and then, school was that? I asked only because I, I was going to go to UCSD was where I was looking to go. Um, I know it's your hometown, and yeah. I hate to say this, Drew, but right. I, I was really bored there. Yes, and, I was uh, too. Right. <laughs> and I, uh, I ended up uh, coming up here in San Francisco one weekend, uh, Thanksgiving of 1974. I hitchhiked up from San Diego. I was mm. going to meet a friend here, and I fell in love with San Francisco. And I thought, okay, I'll just figure it out here. There's other schools here, and I could uh, do something. And I went to work at a nightclub, and like all, you know, all these particular jobs, you know, sort of. I learned things uh, right. along. There were certain people, you know, and sort of unlikely people that became kind of mentors to me like, about how to do yeah. things. Um, Who unlikely comes right to mind? The, and- the first unlikely was uh, it was uh, there were a group of people I worked at this club. It was called the Boarding House, and um, and a lot of famous acts came through there just as they were about to break into real big time 
think people like Steve Martin and Bob Marley and the Whalers and Lily Tomlin had already broken big. But there were lots of you know interesting people. And the people that worked at this club were very serious about a couple of things, about doing a good job. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea of what it was like to, if you're going to be in this business, what a good job meant. And there were managers there that sort of, you know, there was this kind of very laid back but very serious uh, aesthetic about, you know, being a tour. And then everyone actually loved the music in the place, too. So people saw a lot of musicians work there. And so there was sort of an affinity about doing something well there. And I got to see some interesting characters. There was a bartender there who was very influential, a guy named Terry Dowling, uh, who I've uh, talked about in the past. This picture, actually a photograph of him. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, his picture's up in my office. He was a guitar player that I ended up being in a band with there, but he had a particular flair. He ran the bar there, and he had a particular flair about him that was just very, to me, like, cool. And I thought, you know, mm-hmm. what, you know not only was he cool-looking, he had this great mustache and uh, dressed really, you know, you know, interesting and he smoked his camel non filters and you know all sorts of like you know outwardly you know uh, kind of Chris Christofferson-y cool kind of thing uh, but he did his job really well which was being a bartender and it impressed me. You know, he did it with flair. He would flick a glass off the top shelf and catch it. And in the meantime, he was delivering. He was fast. He took care of all the, the weight people there really well and, and ran a kind of a, you know, it was all business, very Zen-like approach. And I thought, all right, this is great. This person is who he is. He's very uniquely a human being that's unto himself. And and he does his job, whatever that job is, really, really, really well. And for whatever reason, mm. that made a huge impression on me. Um, and the other thing that made an impression on me, this was about to the question of conversations, was co- some conversations I witnessed while working at the boarding house. And one was a conversation between Steve Martin and his manager, who I believe was John McCune at the time. And when you played at this club, it was six-night run. You played two shows a night. And, and Steve Martin did three runs there. Just he recorded uh, the second time he recorded his first record there, the Let's Get Small. And uh, I was so impressed with how hard Steve Martin worked. So this issue of working hard mm-hmm. was uh, clearly becoming a, a theme here. Right. Um, at the end of every night's performance, Steve Martin and his manager would sit in the downstairs bar and with a cassette player that... Uh, uh, his manager recorded each night. They would go over the performance, talk about the material, what they might do better the next night. Uh, I remember Steve Martin was almost begging people to stay for the second show because you know they, they weren't the first run in particular wasn't sold out. Mm. And you know he worked every sort of minute, every second of these things from being in the lobby. I mean, he would do these great routines in the lobby, you know, begging people not to leave in some very funny and clever ways, and how he would deal with people in the lobby and how he would make his exit at the end. And, but what was most important it was how hard he worked to get to where he is. You know, obviously, you know, huge film star, and uh, but he took his his craft incredibly um, seriously, and so that that made a big big impression mm. as well too. So this idea of um, things don't come easily, right. and um, and in the world of music and in the world of arts, you see that all the time. And so I, I have a great respect for what it what it takes to be an accomplished artist. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think the general population believes people are born with a gift. They develop their gift a little bit and they get out there and it comes just naturally and they're born with something. But in fact, that's rare. People are born, I believe, with some sort of gift, but they really, the people who are successful are people who have worked extremely, extremely hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, musicians spend, you know, an inordinate amount of their days and their former years, you know, hours of their days, you know, locked up in a room by themselves practicing and perfecting things. And 
you know, artists like uh, Sonny Rollins, for instance, I can remember, you know, we've lucky to present him a number of times. He would lock himself in his dressing room before a show. You'd hear him warming up for an hour or so. And at the end of every performance, he would close the door. You couldn't see him because he would, he would be there practicing yet again, again after the performance, working out all the things, I guess, that he felt that he could have perhaps done differently. Mm. And it was, you know, that was, that was just him. And he was a, also a hardworking guy and as talented and gifted and creative as you can get, and also a very warm human being. So a lot of yeah. these people also, he was a very nice man, or he's still, he's still alive, he's still a very nice man, he's not performing right now. But So th- those things, so in sort of when it came for the, you know, what, when I finally decided what I want to be when I grow up, there we go. Uh, which was decided for me, basically. Um, so I, I did go back to school. I studied music. I was trying to figure out how to make a living going through school. And I thought I could produce some concerts. That would be an easy way to make money and get me, you know, rather than I was a, a working in a produce department in a health food store from right. 6 to 8 every morning or 5 to 9, whatever those crazy hours were. And I thought there's going to be an easier way to do this. Mm-hmm. That, that was hard work. And uh, maybe I could learn how to produce some shows. So that's how I got into the concert producing business was doing those and took a chance in doing that while I was still in college. And, you know, it was a bad move um, because it's not easy what I found out to actually make a living doing this. Uh, So I ended up losing money, dropping out of school a second time um, and had to pay back debt, um, basically. So I wanted, you know, it was very important to the money that I borrowed, uh, which wasn't a substantial amount of money, but it was enough money that I had to pay people back. I went to work in music business and started learning aspects of the music business. And that was the, you know, not by choice, but, you know, I, I went back to the boarding house basically seven years later uh, and uh, was hired as a publicist at that time. And then I learned about the business of promoting music and doing mm. that. And someone gave me a break and I learned about it. And then I kept meeting, you know, and, and it's kind of the story of how all these things sort of developed. I learned a little more about something else. And uh, eventually the person who hired me at the boarding house, the second run there, um, introduced me to uh, someone at the city of San Francisco who, uh, in, a, in the Grant City Granting Agency, who was interested in doing some more things with jazz. And that's how SF Jazz got started, uh, that uh, the city wanted to fund more jazz. And he happened to know her again, happenstance, and went, right. went in and made a proposal for a San Francisco Jazz Festival. And that sort of started this, this organization 35 oh, years ago. That's when it was. It was about... It was about 35 years ago. So take us along that trajectory um, up until, so, so we actually met in 2004, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and you were full on uh, engaged in envisioning where we sit. Yes. Right? So, so that was the yeah, 20th year, ostensibly, close to 20 years of uh, what was then called SF Jazz, uh, now called SF Jazz. We had just changed our name in 2000 from uh, Jazz in the City and San Francisco Jazz Festival. We had a couple different names along the way. And yeah, we were engaged. And so when this organization was founded, the idea was that uh, perhaps jazz could follow a path similar to symphonic organizations, like in our case here in San Francisco, the San Francisco Symphony. And that was a model. So this is another um, sort of 
characteristic of these things, you know, working hard, finding good models. Right. Uh, and we had a great model in the San Francisco Symphony that was a successful symphony orchestra when the symphony world was starting to be stressed at that time. And a lot of organizations were starting to fold and starting to be challenged and uh, the model was changing. But no one had ever really done a strong model for jazz in the way a, a nonprofit performing arts organization for jazz. So... Uh, you know, again, it was a light idea um, initially because, you know, we did a, it was a very modest undertaking the first year we did this. But uh, every year we did a little better, actually a lot better. We kind of doubled or tripled in size every two or three years as we moved along. And by the time we met in 2004, uh, an idea that was always put out from the very beginning that maybe perhaps one day we could be like the symphony and have our own venue and present in and be a cultural institution like they were. Um, we were having a very serious dialogue, the board and I, about all right. Is this a, is this something we could possibly pull off? Yeah. And you know, I you know, I always you know that and the conversations with that board were key in this because basically I had to justify you know something that was going very well. Uh, the San Francisco Jazz Festival. At that point, it was considered the top festival in the world by many people. Um, we had built it into a, a very uh, impressive thing, uh, all based around respecting the art, back to the sa- another mm-hmm. theme. It was all, you know, we weren't making a lot of commercial concessions. We were doing great quality work from the beginning till now. Uh, but why change the model? Why do something from renting all these other venues that mm. we did and then take this risk of having to build your own building and try to do that? What what was to be gained uh, from that? And there were a couple of things that pointed out, and this is where having other people around really help and having conversations and having smarter people than yourself help answer questions. And, you know, we commissioned a lot of studies from some very sharp consultants about whether this was a path that was potentially uh, viable and um, and we, we came up with some you know justifications basically and reasons to do this um, and the idea was all along the same idea jazz a noble art form born here in America it, it has more of a, a multi um, ethnic face than than many other art forms that uh, it, it looked more like society today in the society of San Francisco today that uh, you know we might have a chance of doing this and um, but it was always a, a tough discussion, even on the board. I mean, I, you know, some people think it's a great idea, but how the heck do you do that? That's uh, right. $50 million were some of the numbers, you know, thrown out initially f- right. for, for doing this. And so, again, following the, the rule book. So capital campaigns, I started studying what capital campaigns look like and how do they work. Right. And what are the great hallmarks of that? And one of those hallmarks was a lead gift. Uh, and a lead gift could either be an opportunity or it could be a huge downer. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, a lead gift in, in the amount, typically of a, it was usually around half of the overall organ, the budget. That gave people confidence uh, to sort of move forward. There was someone who believed in it. But there was also the other side to this, that uh, a lead gift, uh, which was called by this one uh, organization, the Nonprofit Facilities Fund, who had these workshops around basically why not to build a building, uh, they couched a lot of those lead gifts as what they called the real estate opportunity. It was how they couched this case. And the real estate opportunity is uh, someone wealthy passes away. They loved the theater company or the opera. They did, and I'm going to give you know half of my fortune to this thing. And here, here's a $20 million gift. Go build a theater. Name it after me. And my wife or my husband will take care of this for me. Right. And then, of course, the artistic director or executive director will think, fantastic. This is our chance. We're going to build a building. We're going to do it. Not understanding really what that means. 
we were lucky in that we sort of started really studying this. You know, what did it mean? What were the pitfalls? What were the potential opportunities? And we, you know, and because we had such smart and powerful people in many cases on our board, I had to make an argument to someone who knew, who had a much bigger intellectual capacity than I'll ever have, yeah. you know, to make it sound like it was something that was rational to, to do. And so that sort of sharpened my game. There was one conversation I had in this process with one of those really smart people that really sort of shifted my thinking about how describing the process and sort of understanding how to inject sort of a belief in this because there, there's a real there's a real pragmatic way to do these projects which is you know you've got these things you have to accomplish along the way right. but there's sort of the, I won't, the, the sort of metaphysical thing to do is you know someone's got to really believe that this is possible and can pull everyone along with this um, sometimes be viewed as unrealistic belief mm-hmm. uh, and this was a conversation with a venture capitalist named Bill Bowes uh, Bill was one of the first big uh, VCs in, in Silicon Valley and the company US Venture Partners are still very active and he was on our board, and a wise, wise man. Uh, he just passed away in the last few months. Uh, and in talking to him, you know, my question was, well, what, you know, here's what we're thinking of doing. This is what it's going to be. You know, what, you know, how, how do you judge whether this is a good idea or not? And uh, his answer back was really short. It was, and it was great, which is, you know, well, do you think the project is transformational? That was the question back mm. to me. And I thought, okay, if, if, and basically his explanation for that was, it wasn't really, you know, it would be hard to push a new thing forward that this seemed to be going against all odds, unless there was some reason that it could change something. I think the disruptive is a word that can be used now that's not quite the same, but but it's going to change some from something to something else. So then you're 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 not in the business of supporting something that was old, or you know there was um, you know not preserving something, but you're creating something new. It's gonna, you're going to transform, and there's a lot of energy in that idea of transforming into mm. something new. And it, after that conversation, I don't know how long it took for it to sink in with me, but it, it gave me a lot of freedom in then explaining why this was an important project. Yeah. Because I was always cautious about explaining this idea that this is a great art form, all the, you know, the sort of the really pure kind of uh, emotional reasons to do something. I love this music. Uh, you know, I grew to love it very early at an early age. Uh, when I, it, it is transformational for me when I sit in certain kinds of performances and I come out feeling a lot better than I do when I came in. And jazz has this whole sense of danger and improvisation and, uh, you know, and also this great sense of rhythm that carries you along. There's all sorts of great things and great teamwork, all these things you get to see on the stage of uh, how people interact with one another. So then I, you know, you know, Bill's response or transfer. Okay, great. Let, let's let's figure out if we're going to do this even more. So, how can the team that we're going to do this make this more transformational? Right. And so we started thinking about not just building a building that could house an art form that many people viewed to be kind of um, moldy, um, and was somebody's parents or grandparents' music into something that was just the opposite, was something that was dynamic and creative, which it's always been. And so we set out, we found a great team to do that. And mm. all these things, again, for me, it's always kind of happenstance. You know, I happen to see an article in a magazine about great architecture in the Bay Area. I see a building we, we knew we wanted, kind of a mid-century-ish building. That was a heyday of jazz. That kind of architecture seems to be something that's going to be hanging around. It says something about, um, you know, classic forms um, and a good basis for creating new things on top of it. So 
the architect uh, was featured of best architecture in the Bay Area. I found him, uh, got to view the the building that he he was recognized for, which was a community music center just south of here, uh, which he won all sorts of architectural awards for. And he took me on the tour of the building and told me a little bit, and I started learning about architecture and you know what these you know what these qualities that I could barely quantify, right. uh, and found a way to begin to quantify. And so then we sort of developed a plan. Uh, Mark Cavaniero is, is his name. And, and Mark, uh, you know, also he had an affinity for jazz, which turned out to be a very important part of the project. When I first went to his first website, the splash page, splash page had a John Coltrane quote on it. it. And I thought, oh, this must be a, a very good sign here uh, for Mark. But it was more than a good sign. He just had an affinity for the music and the rhythm of music. And architecture, a lot of it is about rhythm. And it's about openness. And so the building we sit in was is an attempt to sort of change how performing arts centers work and how people might view jazz and create this idea of it being more open and uh, and marking off. So I had this very strong idea about performance and performance spaces, and we were also beneficiaries of a lot of good research about uh, changing uh, how the, the society's societal changes about how people are interested in participating with art. And right. um, so those same, the same model, the San Francisco Symphony and symphony orchestras in general, was a model that was crumbling at the same time and people thinking about doing things. And one of the things that has been done on the basis of research in those world is buildings that are more open, that don't feel like bastions to culture. They aren't, uh, you know, these fortresses for culture. They're things that welcome people in. And we're sitting in a room right now right. that, that is, is built around this concept. It's a room, it's a performance space and a rehearsal space where it's literally open to the streets, right on the street. And it's two on a corner and two of the walls are all glass. And as we're here, people are walking by and looking in and we're looking out and people see that there's something happening here. And at night when there's a performance here, people drive by or walk right. by and they see something is happening. So that's something a little different that, that you, 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 you can connect with right. things that you might, maybe there might be something that. That works. You know, I'm, as you tell that story, especially in the points and the intersection with these people, whether it was the board members, whether it was the architect, whether it's these people walking by, it really strikes me that, uh, I've got this quote in my head, I read about it from a neuroscientist who talked about persuasion mm -hmm. and talked about connecting in a real influential way. And the quote goes, I'll paraphrase slightly, but the quote goes that reason leads to decision, emotion leads to action. And the decision is one thing, but to take the action to implement the decision is entirely another. And in your position, in a lot of these people that are nice enough to guest on this podcast, sort of the through line is they have made a difference in this world in the face of, as you tell, in the face of resistance, yeah. in the face of, hey, can we really do that? In the face of doubt. Mm -hmm. But what you did and what you continue to do even in our own personal conversations, is it really is about this, this lovely um, connection between knowing your stuff, working really hard to have that down, but at the end of the day, you present emotion here, right, mm -hmm. in the form of music, in the form of people's uh, engagement with the architecture. So uh, I was just struck by that as you were telling that story and for the listener thinking about how to 
how to how to move people. That's something we we think if we get the PowerPoint right, yeah. right, and we get our slides looking just so, and we've got everything memorized, that we're going to win the day. But you could have showed all the PowerPoints in the world, yeah. and it wasn't going to do it. Yeah. So this is a place where I've got very strong opinions. Uh, so the, you, there's got to be a there there. I yep. mean, in the end, and 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 it typically ends up being sort of it's, it's both an emotional and it's a pragmatic kind of explanation about something. But you know to. You know, here in art, in, in presenting art, you know, there is something that happens to people. You know, there's, 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 there is a transformative experience. And there, there was another article, actually, that I can refer to later about, you know, the, the experience people can have listening to, to music different, uh, in, in a way. You know, and our whole goal here was we want to change that paradigm. We want to create conditions by which people could have their own personal transformational experience, you know, in listening to music. And musicians could as well, too. We wanted to create this, you know, speaking of dialogues, this is really a conversation between artists and audiences. Mm -hmm. And our, you know, when they can really talk well together, because it's very important for a musician on stage to feel the energy of an audience. And it's obviously very important as an audience member to get the energy of what comes off the stage. But it's this beautiful um, loop that uh, when it works well, it's, it's, you know, it's just a phenomenal thing to sort of be part of, uh, and uh, th this 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 loop is you know very you know we all we all want to be part of it you know when it's there. But we, we tend to go to concerts feeling that we're like man that was the greatest thing and that energy that came from the stage. But it's just the same for the musician; they're feeling it from you know what what's happening. Yes, they are creating the the. Uh, they're setting the stage for us all, but you know they feed off that energy. So energy. If, we, if we could increase this here, and so this idea about passion moving forward, how how you move something to happen, you've got to sort of be tenacious enough to sort of believe. If you have a root belief in this, and you have enough evidence, so you know I've done the good PowerPoint presentations. I've never been great at it, um, you know, and it's usually been. Um, you know, kind of a forced thing, you know, to sort of <laughs> to get there. However, in the end, you know, there are certain things that have to happen in those things. You have to have your research. You have to have your numbers right. All those things have to happen. But it, but it comes back to the Bill Bowes thing. Unless there's something that really you feel is transformational, right. you know, there's, there's a reason you're willing to go to bat for this because this was not an easy thing to pull off, you know, I mean, you know, in assessing this now, you know, you know, 10 years, uh, 13 years from when we met and we were just really starting to, to push this forward is that, um, you know, at some point it's going to seem impossible. Right. <laughs> There's going to be. And then what helps push you sort of through a hump like that? Right. And you've got to have things, but, you know, and I've seen people not to be, you know, negative or, but, you know, I've seen people who are able to get to a certain level on you know what we'll call the PowerPoint presentation, um, you know they they understand all the right words to say, they understand all the things to do, but eventually to be excellent at something, I think you can be good at lots of things with with uh, that. No, but unless you really sort of know your stuff the way Steve Martin wanted to learn his stuff, you, you don't get to be Steve Martin no. in the end. Uh, you don't get to not, you don't get to build a building like this without you know not just a, a belief, but some knowledge matched with the belief. So, you know, the two have to go sort of hand in hand for right. it to really work. But you've got to be able to, you know, 
you know, the challenge is, I just think back to other conversations, one other tough conversation, there was another board member who was considered sort of the most powerful person on the board at that time, who was the most challenging, you know, sort of about this in a good way. And it forced, you know, so this is where the passion helps. So you're engaged, you, you, you really believe this thing could work, you're trying to understand all the places it could go wrong, how to connect things to make it stronger. And to have to convince him, I remember this was around when we were trying to come up with a good case statement for why to build a building. And not an easy thing to even write, uh, you know, something that's going to be good for everybody because everyone hears things differently. Everyone tells things differently as well, too. Part of this issue of conversation is, you know, what you hear in a conversation may not be what the other person hears exactly. as well in the same same conversation. But I love that challenge, actually, was it, it forced me to sharpen an explanation, which made the project much stronger. So the people that, you know, sort of the challenges along the way, the things that were sort of the hardest levels... No, you're willing to sort of accept some of those challenges and you get to live with some compromises along the way yeah. too. And Yeah. It, it, it strikes me though, you mentioned about two minutes ago you were talking about hitting the bumps uh, and then you talked about this board member. Uh, and as you know, um, I, I try to help people change uh, and evolve. At least one part of it is around this process of what we tell ourselves. The most, some of the most important conversations mm-hmm. are the ones in our head. So do you at all recall, let me take you to any of those bumps with that board member mm-hmm. or otherwise, do you recall what, your, what you said to yourself as you hit those impossible feeling moments? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, it was just like it was, I just viewed it as a challenge. I went back to, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to there's got to be a way to do this. So there's got to be yeah. a way to explain this. I've had you know another board member really didn't quite understand the business model. Very, very another very smart you know, and I made an attempt you know a number of times in public sessions to sort of explain the business model uh, for the for the building and just you know it wasn't sinking in, and so I made an attempt to spend time, you know, a couple of hours with them personally, and it still didn't sing in uh, right. after uh, that period of time. And then, then I, that, that's a feeling I can remember, like, this, that was, like, the lowest I, I sort of got around this was that, because um, that person's feedback was not even positive. You know, it was just like, you know, I don't, I just don't get why you think this thing's going to work. Right. Um, and, right. uh, and there's nothing you can tell me that's going to change my mind, really, at this point. At the same time, they're still being a board member and they're still being supportive. So right. a little bit of a paradox in it. Maybe they, they their intent was to sort of challenge it and try to raise the game. But, you know, what I told myself after that was, you know, I, I you know, it just sort of, I think it gets primal at that point. And mm. certain, you know, if you really emotionally believe and it's just, all right, well, how, how can I figure out how to, 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 to do this. And what, you know, in the end, you know, in that particular thing, so sometimes, and this can be annoying to other people, and you talk about how to get over humps, you, you kind of sometimes have a belief that you know you're right. Right. <laughs> and this is a very, very sort of um, walking on ice kind of place. Yes. Because this is where conversations get very hard. And when, in your, in what you do for a living is to help people with these people who are, feel very strongly that they're right, right and they ostensibly want to shove that idea down everyone's right. throat, right. you know, and, you know, why are we bothering, you know, going through this, you know, and so as much as my, a lot of my own personal impulse may have been to do that, um, to shove, to shove right. It, right. And, 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 and it still is an impulse of mine, uh, you know, the truth is it doesn't always work. And there are certain times when forcing it at times, you don't have time. So yeah. another thing in all these things, the pragmatic part of getting things done, 
and we're going all over the place here, Drew, is, is issues. Things that's been motivating to me, oddly enough, is deadlines. Uh, when you're forced to make a decision. Um, and, you know, decision making, I, God, who was I just reading? Uh, it was about uh, um, Instagram, the two founders of Instagram. Now have put together this, uh, one of whom comes here frequently, actually. Um, this, uh, to, to make decisions, they've set a weekly meeting to say, all right, what we're going to do in these meetings is make decisions. Right. You know, it was very in t- clear. today's New right. York Times, actually. Right. It was, uh, and I thought, well, you know, this is a fascinating thing. Decisions are difficult for people to make. And sometimes when you, in a project like this, when you kind of know the right direction, and you don't always know the right direction, but you just got to keep moving forward because there's a deadline coming up. And you got to do something. And in fact, it may be wrong. And that's the other thing about faith in, uh, and this is a jazz-like quality, faith in making the wrong decision where you are smart enough and prepared enough to change course. Mm. Uh, so you may have an inkling you're headed in the right direction. And this is all about, I think, creative things. This building is one of the things I'm working on some new initiatives right now that are the same way. Uh, there are you know, initiatives around how we spread the word of this building digitally. And I've got you know, feelings about where to go. But the only way to know whether that's a good idea or not is you've got to sort of go down the path. And you know that once you start going down that path, it's going to shift a little bit. Um, And you have to have faith in the people you work with and everyone around you that, you know, and you've got a team of people that can talk that say, all right, this isn't how we thought it was going to be. And you can change. And sometimes those changes are all the things that make it better in the, in Mm. the end. So it's, Mm. you've got to be strong to sort of push it somewhere, but also I think stronger to say, oh, we might, we may have made a mistake here. Yeah. And what's difficult in talking with other people about these things is everyone, I think, you know, in general, it's tough to not just to make decisions, but to change. And, you know, as human beings, I think we are just hardwired to not change. We yes. find where we're comfortable and if whether, you know, whatever you're used to, that's what you're used to. And to move, even if it's better, it's not easy to do that. And the, right. and the more you get, and that, that's about decision-making a lot of that right. as we move forward. So when groups have to make decisions, it, it's difficult. They need good leaders. I think one of the things that really got us through this project, we're on an interesting tangent here about decision-making, was good consultants, interestingly enough. People who everyone respected, who neutralized the topic. Right. Um, why your business is so valuable. Because people get caught up in the emotion of the moment of, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, um, you know, and um, people kind of lose sight of what it is you're there. And the outside consultant, and if it's the right consultant, can really help, you know, push through that particular point where you can be pragmatic. And I, I know in developing the, the feasibility study for this building, we had a, a brilliant consultant, a guy named Adrian Ellis, who was smart. And his uh, intelligence really sort of carried the day, I thought. I mean, he was very experienced in this world, uh, but he allowed all sorts of voices to be heard right. uh, when it came time to making the big final decision. Are we going to commit to $60 million that we're going to raise to build a building? To build a building. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm struck as we, as we begin to conclude here that uh, the, the thing that has made up the most important conversations for you have been, have been driven through your life, really, as I've heard it, uh, have been driven by that ethic of hard work, um, by a sense of where and how to get to a certain place. But now what's come into it, and it probably was present back in the football days, um, is that interesting mixture between being completely prepared and also 
appealing to the, in essence, the heart and yeah. the emotion. And what, what, what is, is, is most striking uh, there at the end is likely w- what has served you best in your best moments and in all the best moments of anyone trying to prove something that they feel strongly about is in actuality uh, endeavoring to listen, to ask the extra question, and to keep the conversation going. Because sometimes, no, no matter how right you may think you are, there's no use being dead right, mm-hmm. as somebody once told me. And that, by what we're sitting in, you have, you have built something magnificent here with the help of a lot of people uh, who I know you, you, you care about and want to give credit to. But this is your place. And I'm proud as your friend and as, your, your, uh, as you being a former client uh, to hear you talk and to share your story today. I thank you so mm-hmm. much for, Th- for doing that. You, you are very welcome and thank you. I mean, th- th- you know, a lot of the teaching that comes from Drew Kugler uh, from you really you know, played a big part in, in working through you know, all, the, all the intricacies of uh, unraveling uh, you know, to, get, unraveling to get to some this. simple premises to get this done. Yeah, thank you, Randall. Thanks for taking the time. 